Chapter 4 of The Gargoyle by Grea Lespina. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Ben Tucker. Chapter 4 The Master. From the deep slumber into which his vigils finally plunged him, Luke wakened to hear someone rapping loudly at the door. He got up lazily and unlocked it. If you please, sir, the master has ordered breakfast for you, and the other gentleman on the roof garden. The morning is mild and warm, sir. Of course, and the voice altered subtly. If you prefer to breakfast in bed, I am sure the master will alter his arrangements. Let it be the roof garden, Mason, Luke acquiesced. I'll be out in ten minutes. Is Mr. Benny, that is, the other gentleman, up? He is already out, sir. A light sleeper, sir, I'd say. Didn't touch the spiced wine, sir, irrelevantly. You may as well take out my empty goblet, Luke suggested. Now you're here. That's some wine, Mason, but it makes a fellow sleep, he said casually. Under his heavy eyebrows, the keen gray eyes watched Mason's face. You may well say so, sir. Miss Sybil always sleeps heavily after drinking it. The master gives it to her whenever she complains of insomnia. Mason appeared innocent enough, but Luke fancied that the man was studying him curiously behind that impassive gaze. May I give you a hand, sir, with your dressing? Thanks, no. Not used to being valeted, Mason. I'll be upstairs in a few minutes, dismissed Luke. Wanted to drug me last night, he murmured to himself. I'll have to watch out for these quieting nightcaps, he told himself as he dressed. But his thoughts were more on the mystifying remarks he had heard the night before, hidden behind the tapestry of Sybil Fane's room. He was anxious to meet the girl, and wondered if she would appear at breakfast. There was no one in the garden but the occultist, however, and the little man was pacing nervously up and down the path when Luke appeared at the doorway. This is a strange place, was his greeting. Did, did you sleep last night? Like a top, Luke replied carelessly. Cagliostro jerked his carroty head from one side to the other, and after his squinty eyes had gazed watchfully about him, he said in a low voice, Well, I suppose you drank that wine, didn't you? Luke laughed. No, my good Cagliostro, I didn't. What do you take me for, a babe in arms? I poured it down the lavatory in the bathroom, and sat up for hours to find why I had been offered the potion. Then you knew about it? babbled the occultist, marveling. How did you know? How did you? parried Luke, smiling. By the way, I see our breakfast is ready, and it looks mighty appetizing. He drew up a chair, and would have seated himself so that he was facing the forest. But Mason hastily interfered, pulling out a chair that seated him facing the interior towers of the castle. Slightly puzzled, Luke took the place. As he helped himself to crisp bacon and golden marmalade, his watchful eyes went over the towers that he faced. Within the castle walls, there rose a great roof of corrugated glass, admitting sunlight but shutting out all intrusive glances. This translucent roof was built in a series of terraces culminating in a central tower at one end, which style of architecture permitted the insertion of ventilators in the shape of metal blinds set with the openings downward, again with the very obvious end of shielding the courtyard from curious eyes, while at the same time affording free access of fresh air. That's an odd sort of thing, he started to say to his companion, when he was suddenly half-blinded by a brilliant flash of light from the tower above the glass roof. 
a flash so sharp and sudden that he flung up one hand to protect his eyes. It was as if some mischievous urchin had manipulated a mirror to deflect the sun's rays into his face. When he looked to see what had occasioned the flash, his curiosity was piqued, and at the same time he was slightly irritated. It was a repetition of last night's occurrence with the searchlight. The flash had been occasioned by the reflection of sunlight from glass, but the glass had not been a mirror. It was from the barrels of a field glass, in the act of being once more leveled in his direction. Some curious individual was looking him over in this manner. Darned impertinence, Luke said aloud. Cagliostro, what would you take that to be? He pointed out the two barrels of the field glass, which he could observe distinctly between the shutters of a window in the central tower. The occultist looked back across his shoulders without much interest, obviously preoccupied with his own thoughts. Somebody's looking us over, my friend. He didn't get a very good look at us last night, so he's trying it in daylight. And I know who it is, Luke added in a low voice. The pale blue eyes shifted to look into Luke's. Somewhere in their depths flickered a keener perception than the artist had supposed the little Benny capable of. It's he, whispered the occultist. How do you know? I feel it, Mr. Porter. Well, I know because, and then Luke broke off, remembering that the information he had gained by listening behind the hangings in Sybil Fane's room was not to be imparted in this fashion. Did you feel it, too? Why, yes, that is about what I'd think, Luke stumbled awkwardly. We are supposed to meet Mr. Fane this morning, the occultist volunteered, as he finished his second cup of coffee with gusto. Mr. Fane wishes Mr. Porter to go up to his study first, said Mason's suave voice over Luke's shoulder. Cagliostro bristled with indignation. His pouting mouth stuck its lips out in protest. There's some mistake, he scolded peevishly. This young man is merely my my assistant. I am the occultist, not he. The major domo did not smile. He spoke seriously and respectfully. Quite so, sir. But Mr. Fane undoubtedly wishes to see if your assistant is satisfactory before bothering you with an interview. He would not care to take up your time needlessly, I'm sure, sir. The occultist was satisfied. He seated himself, wrapped in his dark mantle upon the rustic bench, with immense dignity. I will wait here until you return, Mr. Porter, he announced. Will you kindly come with me, sir? Mason requested. The master has asked me to tell you that he hopes you will make allowance for him if you find him irritable. He is tired and nervous from a sleepless night. Without giving the artist time to reply, Mason led the way down long corridors and staircases that led Luke, surmised by the general direction, into the very heart of Fainwald Castle. At last they paused before a door. Mason opened it noiselessly, stepping to one side and motioning the artist to enter. No announcement was made. Indeed, as the room was in complete darkness, Luke could hardly believe that anyone was waiting there. He stepped across the threshold of the room slowly and paused, hardly knowing whether to stop where he was or to feel his way forward through the Stygian darkness. The outer corridor had been dimly illuminated by occasional tall and narrow windows, shadowed by climbing ivy. But this room apparently had no windows, and the only light was that of a single candle standing so far back in the depths of the apartment that it served but to make the darkness visible. Luke took another step forward. He stood stock still and waited. 
He had no intention of breaking a rib by a fall over unseen pieces of antique furniture. He had half a mind to step back out of that uncanny blackness that seemed to be closing in like innumerable, invisible presences, alive with inconceivable and strange malevolence. As he stood, half exasperated and half unnerved by the oddity of his bizarre reception, a voice sounded on his ear, so unexpectedly near at hand that the startled young man went back several paces. The soft and musical notes of that plaintive voice did not move Luke from his quick indignation, and although the first words spoken were an apology, the artist gulped hard to swallow his resentment those tricks of darkness and an unseen speaker. Memory of the previous night's revelations also angered him. Pardon me, my dear sir, I beg of you, for what must seem a strange and inhospitable reception, said the voice. I am, alas, inflicted with a malady which precludes your reception in other than the dim light of this room. My eyes, went on that melancholy and touching voice plaintively, cannot bear more than the pale light of a single candle at a distance. Such a reception is hardly reassuring, Luke remarked coldly, his nerves yet throbbing. But since you have been so kind as to explain that it is due to a misfortune, I cannot, of course, do other than extend sympathy for a malady which shuts you away from the glorious light of day. I am speaking, I presume, to Mr. Guyfane. I am Guyfane. Your name, I am informed, is Luke Porter. If you will step forward, Mr. Porter, your hand will find a chair already placed. I would like to ask a few questions of you if you do not object. Luke found the indicated chair and sat down uncomfortably. This conversation with an unseen person in the dark was not just to his taste. He loved sunshine and space, not this black, crowding darkness. I understand that you have come with uh, Cagliostro Moderno as his assistant. Have you ever studied uh, magic? Luke consulted himself hastily. He dared not deny knowledge of the subject entirely, for this might result in his being shut out completely from the strange experiments he was now burning to witness. Moreover, he did not wish to leave Fainwald without first meeting Sybil Fane and seeing how he could be of service to her if she really needed, as Alden had declared, his help. I have not gone very deeply into the subject, Mr. Fane, he admitted with apparent frankness, but you must know that it is too tremendous in scope for anyone to say that he has done more than studied it. Then it is our Cagliostro who is the real adept, the initiate. A laugh followed the words, a laugh so eerie that Luke had much ado to keep his nerves from throbbing uncomfortably again. The cachinnation broke off as suddenly as it had burst forth, leaving in its wake a silence yet more uncanny. Luke felt that, through the gloom, the unseen master was gazing at him with keen eyes that pierced the darkness, and was cynically enjoying his manifest discomfort. He took himself in hand firmly. Guy Fane spoke suddenly then, taking up the current of his thought as if he had not broken it off by his uncanny laughter. He really doesn't look the part, do you think, Mr. Porter? One doesn't have to look the part, does he, to accomplish what he sets out to do? I don't wear flowing ties and long hair, but I've managed to achieve a small success at painting, and I don't look the part, I've been told often, Luke retorted. 
You are not slow at a parry, Mr. Porter, complimented the invisible host. What I wish to know is, do you feel skeptical about magic, or have you reason to believe that it exists? I've seen black magic worked in Haiti, Luke said slowly. After that, can I deny it? Right to the point, aren't you? What does it represent to you? The reply came slowly, for Luke felt that Guy Fane laid much stress upon it. The whole affair savored so much of the outra that he felt extreme dislike to discuss such a subject under such conditions. Yet the very silence appeared to wait upon his answer. In its final analysis, magic is no more than the power of the imagination, utilized along lines which the masses are not conversant. The imagination possesses potentialities fraught with more far-reaching influence and potent force than is realized by the average man, he said at last. Ah, your opinion interests me immensely. It coincides with mine. You would concede, then, that under conditions where the human mind has been wrought up to a high tension, incidents ordinarily termed miraculous might take place. Admittedly, what would you consider the conditions most favorable for the working of so-called miracles? Asked the master, eagerness discernible in his mellow voice. The Bible states plainly that the first condition is that of ardent demand. The second is that of earnest belief, that the demand not only will be fulfilled, but is already fulfilled. Then you think results will be quicker and more powerful in proportion to the strength of the faith involved? Assuredly, Mr. Fane. I am much gratified to find that we are so deeply in accord on such an interesting subject, Mr. Porter. I am conducting an experiment along magical lines, and shall later on expect some very important assistance from you. My good mother cannot assist me as much as she used to. Growing ill health makes it impossible for her to concentrate mentally. Luke remained silent. There was a short pause. In the meantime, may I ask you to do what you can to make the hours pass agreeably for my cousin? I shall consider as a personal favor all that you do for her. In fact, you will be doing me a great service, which you may understand better later on. Mason? The majordomo appeared in the dim entrance. Will you kindly take Mr. Porter to Miss Fane and bring me the, uh, adept? who must have been waiting impatiently for this pleasant little chat with Mr. Porter to end. Luke followed the servitor into the corridor as Guy Fane's velvety voice sank musically into the darkness and died away. But after he had taken the few steps which would bring him to comparative light, he paused, with a vivid impression that something stood before him, blocking his way and staring up at him with eyes that mocked subtly. How extremely psychic you are, my dear Mr. Porter, murmured Guy's voice, vibrating with gentle amusement. As he spoke, a soft rustle betrayed the movement of someone near at hand. The way was clear. Luke followed Mason down the corridor beneath the light of the guttering candles. As he went, he heard that strange laugh again, full now of what seemed to his sensitive ear malicious enjoyment. The sound of it struck an angry chill through him. As he groped along, he continued to feel strange. Peering eyes followed his slow progress, and the sensation did not serve in any way to retard his steps. End of chapter 4